if you look at the movie Joker, he's much more of a sociopath. If you look at the movie Iron Man, we can argue he might be more of a psychopath, especially the first few ones. He's a bit more cold towards other people. He can be a bit more data-driven. Psychopath and sociopath. Yeah. What is the difference? Yeah. Psychopaths are people who have less empathy towards others, but far more common than we realize. Sociopaths are people who have done things like really horrific breaking the law, people who have committed murders, people who are serial murderers, those kind of things. What are your thoughts about what happened last 12 months with COVID and the side effects to parents and kids? COVID's been called the, the great clarifier. This past year with this pandemic, everyone's lost something, whether it's a person or a way of life. Our system is kind of broken and we need to be fixing the system so the stability of our life can come back as soon as possible. That's how we cope with the stress of COVID. My guest today is Dr. Ali Matu, who is a psychologist. He's also got his own show called The Psych Show. He's been the co-host on PBS's Self-Evident, an expert on Netflix and Vox, The Mind Explained Anxiety, HBO's Doctor Commentaries, and A&E's The Employables. He's been featured all over the place. His expertise is in treating panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, phobias, hair pulling, skin picking. Even if you are scared of bees, he specializes in that. So with that being said, <laughs> Dr. Ali, thank you so much for being a guest on Bayitainment. Patrick, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today. You know, it's funny when we were pre us recording, I said, listen, if this uh, doctor stuff doesn't work out for you, you can go into modeling and acting. You got that. <laughs> Unique little uh, look going for yourself. I mean, you got a good look. Okay. Can you go back in time about 30 years and, and tell my childhood version of that? That, that saved me a lot, of, a lot of years of Hey, uh, kid, of I think instead of being a doctor, you ought to go into Hollywood. I think you're going to be like the Omar Sharif type of a guy if you go into it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, listen, it's good to have you on. You know, I watch your video, uh, the one um, on uh, YouTube. One of our girls brought it in and she said, I think we need to have him on. And I'm watching, I watch it once, twice. It's, I mean, the way you break it down, all the different personalities of movies, I think that thing's got over 8 million, maybe 10 million views today. And uh, it is a topic that, you know, we hear a lot about today. But the area I'd want to focus today with, with all these yeah. different issues is how it links up with business and overly successful people in the world, yeah. whether it's business, politics, military, I'm talking the obsessive driven people at the highest level. And yeah. I'm going to bring up some articles here that talks about how the, the link between mental yeah. illness and success. But prior to getting into this, I want to know, you know, if you don't mind sharing with the audience, how, how did you wake up one day saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what I want to be a psychologist one day? How did that experience take <laughs> place for you? It didn't happen like that. Um, Patrick, I was, um, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Growing up, I, uh, I loved riding my bike. I loved playing video games. I loved playing Street Fighter with my brother. Um, I, was, uh, I was really into uh, science fiction. I loved Star Trek. I loved Star Wars. But uh, I didn't really have any big dreams about the future. You know, my, um, I grew up in Northern California, and uh, my parents were immigrants. And so I, I often got the message, like, be a doctor, like, be, be a physician, um, you know, go, go treat some people, heal some people. But um, I don't know, that didn't really, that side of things didn't click for me. 
And then I thought, okay, like all my, um, everyone around me is an engineer at Silicon Valley. Maybe I'll go into that. I took one computer science class, Patrick, and I, I flunked that class, man. I was, I couldn't think like logically in terms of like numbers and order. And um, I wasn't a good high school student either. I, um, I almost flunked out of high school. I just didn't really care about anything. So I went to community college and I was a big slacker. I waited till the last minute to register for classes. One of the only classes left open was introductory psychology because it's, it's a big class, like 80 plus people. And it satisfied my, my general education requirements. I took it and I never, I'll never forget that first day is Professor Gosling, and he broke down all these myths we have about the mind and the brain and our behavior. And I was hooked. I was hooked. He gave me a way, a scientific way of understanding all the junk that happened in my life, you know, and in, in the world around me. How old were and you I at just, that time? 18. Okay, got 18. it. 18. And I just started taking more of those classes. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she's like, maybe you should major in this. And I'm like, what are you gonna, what can I do with psychology? That's not, that's not a career. Um, and I, I just took more of those classes. I talked to more of those professors. And eventually I realized, hey, this is, this is the thing for me. I like working with people. I really like the science. I like understanding things this way. Maybe there's something I can do with it. So I became a doctor and not the kind of doctor my parents wanted originally. Um, when I told my dad I was going to get a PhD and go into psychology, he said, Beta, you know what PhD means, right? And I said, no. And he said, poor hungry doctor. And then he said, you know what MD stands for, right? And I'm like, no, dad, but I'm probably not going to like it. And he said, money doctor. So you sure you want to do this thing? Wow. <laughs> it's come around now. He's come along now, but yeah, um, I bet. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're in a different place today. <laughs> but yeah, that's a story. But now, now, let me ask you this. Now, you know, yeah. when when you hear, uh, I'm just writing this note. Poor, hungry doctor, money doctor. When you're, yeah. when you're, when I hear stories of people that end up taking a topic, and they go a deeper layer and deeper and deeper and deeper. There's typically a personal experience, something that happened to them that makes them want to go to a place like that. I know you personally had an experience in your personal life. How much of what happened there with you and your brother, with the influence you had on you, you guys playing video games together, watching Star Trek with them when you were a kid, I think he's like nine years older than you, the, the yes. age difference. So as an older, how much of that had influence of you wanting to go figure this thing out, the brain out? It had a lot and a little. Okay. So um, my, my brother growing up, always, always encouraged my, my interests. And he always was exposing me to different things. He was exposing me to computers. He's the one who got me interested in science fiction. And science fiction is all about these questions of who we are, what we do, and all of that sort of stuff. I think it's because of all those questions of science fiction that, that I was interested in psychology. Like my brother and I would stay up late all the time talking about these movies we saw, Planet of the Apes, we would talk about the originals. Now I'm not talking about like the new ones. I'm talking about the old school ones with the makeup that kind of doesn't look all that great nowadays. But we would talk about those and we're like, why, why are they treating people this way? Like, where does this inhumanity come from? You know, are we that different than animals? What makes us different? My, my brother and I, we'd stay up late 
talking about these things over and over, trying to figure things out. We talk about Star Trek, like how can we get to this better future? You know, we, we talk about, um, we, we talk about so many things. We watch the movie Alien and we talk about like, why was it so scary? Why was it so terrifying? So those conversations were, were huge. It gave me the foundation for when I got to take psychology that all these questions that we never got answers for, boom, we got, we got now a science that answers these things. So in that way, my brother was incredibly influential. The other thing though, too, is, you know, I grew up as a very anxious kid. Um, when I was uh, in kindergarten and went to school for the first time, I had, I didn't realize at the time, no one did around me and my family, but I had selective mutism, which means in certain situations, I didn't talk. It's like someone pressed the mute button on me. And um, they put me in ESL because they thought I couldn't speak English. They didn't realize it was anxiety. Um, that, that turned into social anxiety. And when I got to middle school, it turned into depression. And eventually in high school, I had a great teacher that helped me to overcome a lot of my anxiety. Um, but my brother's role was, was huge in that. And, um, but uh, my, my brother, you know, we, we didn't realize at the time, but he, he had undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And um, when I was in grad school studying psychology, he ended up taking his own life. Um, we lost him. And then he had another impact on me. Um, after he died, um, there's two things that I sort of committed myself to. One is I wanted to help other people who um, might be in similar situations as my brother. Um, but the other thing is I wanted to, oh, all the lessons he shared with me, all the things he helped me to discover, I wanted to celebrate those things. You know, I wanted to, um, I wanted to speak out publicly for all the other kids that were into all these geeky things that um, at the time weren't that cool. And I wanted to make it cool to love and discover and understand these things. Now we're in a different world. Now comic books and all this stuff, it's all like, you know, it's the thing. But um, when I speak up about this kind of stuff, I, I'd like to think I'm kind of honoring all those late night discussions we had uh, together. You know, when I when I when you say that to me and I visualize it, I think about it like here's a guy that's nine years older than you that doesn't talk to you like you're a kid. It's like the ultimate older yeah. brother. He talks to you like you're a, you know, a, a grown man, which a boy, you want somebody to talk to you like you're grown. You want that kind of a respect. So it's, it's, it's a great seeing that. But as a person who's a psychologist who at that time at 25, you started at 18. Did you already at 25 finish schooling or you're not done yet? Uh, no, no. I, um, 18, um, I was at community college. Um, 20, I transferred to UCLA. I got my bachelor's degree. After that, I went straight to get my PhD. I got my PhD at Catholic University of America in DC. I was there for about, um, six years. Um, it was supposed to be a five-year program, Patrick. Took me seven. And part of it is I had, I had a lot of growing up to do there. But then part of it is also that's when my brother died too. Um, so it took me seven years. And my last year, my training was in New York um, at Bellevue Hospital. And then in 2012 um, is when, no, yeah, yeah, I think I think 2012 is when I wrapped up everything. 
Got and it. so I was, I was 30 at the time, I think. At 30, you wrap up everything. So while you're going through this, and you're and you're becoming a psychologist and you have a personal you know hero of yours uh, blood of yours that's going through this how yeah. are you dealing with grief when you're going through it and now i bet you know at this age where you are you probably dealt with a lot of people who are going through grief and the reason why i'm asking this question for you it's so random how your interview popped up as this week a couple of weeks ago we're in hawaii we took 450 of our guys there and you know we leave hawaii a couple of our guys decides to stay one of our guys his name is sebastian who just had a set of twins with his wife layla mm. and another guy named angelo who's one of our studs coming up quality guy these guys decide to go and look at one of the falls well you know long story so short flash floods comes they get stuck and next thing you know it leads to a fall of 200 it's a pretty uh, uh, tragic situation and both of them end up losing their lives okay in hawaii oh my gosh. what so made sorry. it very complicated with this is on one we didn't find out uh, about the loss for a week the other one the body's not been found till today and it's been several weeks right as we're going maui's oh constantly gosh. reporting it and updating it i watched i spoke to the brother sebastian's brother nico who have a very good relationship i've known these kids for 13 years. They're grown men now. Both of them are parents. Obviously, one of them is not with us. And I watched Angelo, who passed away, his brother, Diego, and his family give a speech at one of the, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, uh, funerals that was being uh, uh, hosted in LA in uh, South Cal uh, Southern California. And I watched the brother talk about it, and the parents give a speech. And it's a different when you lose your friend. It's a different when you lose your father. It's a different thing when you lose a child watching the parents going through it. mother couldn't even talk to me when we we're speaking on a Sunday, yeah. which I totally understand. And it's a different when it's a sibling. Now that this has gone, you were 25. When this happened, he was 34, 2012, you're 30. So add nine years, you're 39. Right now, it's been 14 years since the event, obviously 14 years, you've been able to heal, nothing goes away permanently. That is a scar that stays for a long time, because it is a brother. What could you share with others who are going through this? that when you're in it, what phases does a person go through? And what is the best methodology to, you know, go uh, through your healing process? Yeah, um, well, I'm so sorry for your, um, your team's loss. I mean, that is, that's a, a really tragic situation. And the, the thing about grief, and look, we got, we all got some kind of grief right now. You know, this, this past year with this pandemic, we've, many of us have lost people, but all of us have lost a way of life. You know, people have lost businesses. People have lost, you know, kids are out of school. Like some are going back in, but uh, like the kids lost their, their summer. They lost a graduation. They lost their prom. They lost all, like everyone's lost something, whether it's a person or a way of life. And grief is, um, what it does is it makes, it makes all your emotions supercharged it makes them incredibly powerful. And the thing about grief is there's no one emotion that pops up. Sometimes there's gonna be anger. Sometimes there's gonna be sadness. Sometimes there's gonna be anxiety. How am I gonna get through my life without this person in my, in my life? Sometimes it's, it's jealousy. Sometimes it's guilt. Like, why didn't I do more? You know, it's whatever emotion you're experiencing, it's normal for grief and it's gonna be supercharged it's going to be far more powerful than, than it ever was uh, before you lost this person. The thing about grief, it's not about forgetting the person. It's not about moving on 
from the loss. It's about finding some way to be plugged into your life right now without getting overwhelmed by all the emotions. That's what it's about. It's about finding some way to remember without getting overwhelmed. So let me let me tell you what I went through. Um, yeah, you, uh, the math is right there. My I, I was 25, my brother was 34 when he died. And I was in the middle of grad school. And um, I, I kind of went into to crisis mode. Like I couldn't, I couldn't talk about him. I, I took all my pictures down of, of us together. Um, when I was around other people, I pretend when I was when I met new people, I pretended like I was an only child because um, it was wow too overwhelming for me to think about him to talk about him. And suicide is one of these forms of death that um, we often call a complicated grief because it brings up it, it's almost much more like a trauma, like it it, it incredibly it, seismically changes your views on yourself and the world and other people. So for me, it was, it was many years of not talking and not thinking about, about him. And slowly, I was able to share more of what I was going through with, um, with my very close friends, with my girlfriend, and then slowly and slowly with more people. I was also seeing a therapist at that time. With, uh, with that therapist, I was able to share more. And over time, talking about him became less overwhelming. But that's the thing about, about grief is, you know, um, not everyone has to go through a traumatic grief process, but um, some people will need to cope with it by not talking about the loss. Some people will need to cope with it by talking about the loss. Some people will want to give a speech. Some people will want to write a poem. Some people will want to put all the pictures together. Others will want to put them all away. There's no right way because God. there's no one emotion that yep. pops up, but they're all overwhelming. So you got to do what you need to do to, to live today. And that's, that's the thing about grief is finding a way to live with today without getting overwhelmed by these emotions. And with time, the emotions will become less intense. And then with time, that person can, can be more a part of your memories and more a part of your life right now. You know, it's interesting you say that. I, I, uh, I look at how, uh, people, how we go to funerals at 20, how much of a more impact it has on us emotionally. And you go to a funeral with somebody who's in their 70s and 80s, and to them, it's just a funeral. And then I ask, why, sure. why, do, why are you like, why is it not a big deal to you? And my dad will say, buddy, I've been to hundreds of funerals. What are you talking about? Like, you know, <laughs> you know how many times these I've gone through. It's a part of life. I'm just letting you know my time is coming here. So hopefully you're getting ready with mm -hmm. it. So it's, it's, it's funny how life works. Not funny. It's interesting how life works that in our 20s, we attend college graduations, weddings. In our 30s, we go to kids, you know birthday party, all this other stuff. And we hear about divorces. Your best friend got a divorce. I never thought he would get a divorce. I never thought she would get a divorce. Right. And then once right, that right. number turns 40, you start attending a lot of funerals. But it's different when you yeah, start yeah. doing that early on in your 20s and it's somebody that's that close. Uh, I appreciate yeah. you sharing that with us. Hopefully for the people that uh, experienced that directly, you took a lot away from that. That was very, very helpful. So let's, let's kind of uh, transition out to COVID. And you brought that up before I go into this topic. I think this is another issue, yeah. important issue to talk about. In the last 12 months, you know, as a financial expert, 
you look at the economy based on what we're going through right now, and you go back and try to find trends and research on how the market reacted when it happened before. We have a COVID pandemic. How do we react on the last 10 pandemics before? We got a mortgage you know, crash yeah. on bubble. We go back and study it, right? For you as a psychologist, the number one topic to study, I would guess maybe a top three topic to study is the side effects of pandemic to yeah. parents emotionally who are accustomed to not having the kids eight to five, eight to three, they go to school, we pick them up, as well as kids who were accustomed to having that break from parents and they're around their peers. Now they have to stay home. Conflict's a little higher between yeah. parents. Conflict's a little higher between kids with parents, parents with kids. What do you see the residual effects of this? And what feedback could you give to parents to be able to come back to being normal? You know, the whole thing, we're going back to normal. What, what are your thoughts about what happened last 12 months with COVID and the side effects to parents and kids? Yeah, I got, I got a lot of thoughts about that. And um, just like you do as a financial expert, you look at past trends. Um, the very first thing I did about a year ago when the pandemic was really starting, when things were really starting to shut down is looking to see at um, past pandemics. Now, we don't have much data on the 1918 um, flu uh, pandemic in terms of mental health. That's not something people were really tracking back then. But we do have some data on SARS, on the SARS outbreak um, in Asia that happened um, in the early 2000s. And a few things that, that, um, uh, that stood out from that research is the psychological impact of, of SARS and the disruption of that lasted for years, particularly a lot of people who uh, developed SARS um, experienced a lot of stigma, a lot of guilt. They had a hard time talking about it. There was uh, the guilt was about, did I get other people sick? Did I cause other people to get ill and die? And it was a very hard thing for people to talk about. And we're still sort of kind of in the thick of it. Um, there's some hope with the vaccines, you know, there's some hope that we're going to get this thing under control, but who knows that we got these variants. So it's still kind of up in the air. Um, so we're, we're still kind of in the middle of this. But one of the things I want people to know is yeah, there's no vaccine for the psychological impact of COVID. And we're, we're, gonna, we're learning the long-term psychological effects too. A lot of folks who have had COVID have difficulty focusing. Um, they, they have a hard time with their attention and memory. We don't know the long-term psychological impact of it just in terms of the illness, but we also don't know the long-term psychological impact of having COVID of, um, of what it's gonna be like on the other end of it. But you talked about parents, you talked about kids. You know, um, and, and even um, people who are single and, and don't have kids, um, one of the biggest things that happened here with the pandemic is we lost the most stabilizing part of our lives. We lost our work. We lost school. We lost um, seeing friends and family. We lost looking forward to holidays, whatever holiday you celebrate, one of the things that, that it does is, man, I can't wait for Memorial Day. My family, we get this big barbecue. Yep. It's awesome. Yep. You know, I can't wait for July 4th. I can't wait for the summer thing. I can't wait for the holidays, Thanksgiving. It's um, when you're dealing with a ton of stuff, a lot of times having something to look forward to can get you through some of the grind. And we lost all of that. We lost the stability of our day-to-day -day lives, and we lost the hope of something to look forward to. 
there's no end. You know, Patrick, I did one, one of the most depressing things I think you can do right now. <laughs> uh, it's something I did a few weeks ago. I went back and I looked at my emails from March and April. Man, I don't know if your emails were like mine, but a lot of them were like, yeah, let's cancel it for now. Let's check back in a couple of weeks when things get back to normal. Couple of weeks. Right. <laughs> it never happened. It never happened. But that was that was a lot of the mentality. And then we kind of got into the summer and we're like, yeah, we're going to be in this for the for for a while. Yeah. So with students, what um, we're now getting some pretty good research on what what happened to them in 2020. And um, what we know, um, COVID has been called the, the great clarifier. And it's clarified a lot of things. Um, a lot of the students that have less resources, they've been impacted by this way more. So um, my uh, one of my cousins is a elementary school teacher. She teaches kindergarten. And she's telling me, Ali, I got, I got some, some of my students, um, their family, they got three kids, they got one laptop. How, how are they all, all those kids supposed to go to school, you know, or another, um, another one of my families, they don't have good access to Wi-Fi. So they're, they're hanging out at McDonald's trying to get on classes. So not every student has had equal access to online instruction. So that's problem number one. Um, Problem number two is um, even those who have good access, Mm -hmm. um, they um, they might not be dealing with, um, you know, they might be able to attend classes and all this stuff, but uh, attention and focus is something we're seeing. This is some research looking at college students. They've had a real hard time maintaining focus, um, being on Zoom classes all day long. So I, I'm on meetings all day. I get it, but I can turn, I can turn my, my camera off. I can take breaks. I'm an adult. I got a little bit more flexibility. A lot of these kids don't. Um, there's been a lot of research now coming out about why why is being online and, and Zoom or Google Meet, FaceTime, whatever you're using, why is it so overwhelming? And some folks are talking about it's intimacy overload. You're seeing another person's face like blown up all day long. You know, they're looking at you all day long. We're not designed for that. Usually when we hang out in person or in class at work, we look at each other, we take breaks, we think about it, we kind of come back. But this, this is not really how humans interact. So we know that attention is really challenging for a lot of kids on online instruction. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the second big problem is, is attention has been really difficult for, for a lot of kids. And the third thing I wanna say is, so we got access problems, we have attention problems. The third thing I wanna say is any kid that was uh, struggling before with school, um, they've, they've really been challenged here whether it's because of a learning, um, uh, a learning disorder, or maybe it's because their anxiety, their depression, whatever, it's, whatever is going on. We've seen rates of, um, there's data now that shows that over 2020, there was a big spike in self-injury among teenagers. So cutting themselves, burning themselves, these kind of things, these really spiked. We saw substance use really spiking uh, among teenagers. So, um, it's, it's all of these things. And I think it kind of, when we look at it, it kind of makes sense that like for uh, when it comes to access, the kids who have the least, school was kind of the biggest stabilizing force for them. Um, 
and for um, in terms of attention, we're not built for these kind of things. We do much better in an in-person classroom environment. And when it comes to learning differences, anxiety, depression, all of these kind of things, um, we took away all the peer support. You know, being able to see your friends, your friends being able to check in on you. Hey, man, you doing okay? You don't look that great. Um, teachers being able to to check in on you. Um, one of the biggest uh, there's this idea of resiliency, which is your ability to bounce back. When you deal with a setback, your ability to, to recover from it, that's resiliency. And um, one of the biggest things about resiliency for kids is having a trusted relationship with an adult who is not in your family, who's not your mom and dad. Um, and for a lot of kids, it's teachers, it's coaches, it's those kind of folks. And I've talked to a lot of teachers and coaches. I've done workshops for them this past year. And a lot of them have told me, Ali, I just don't know how they're doing. I can't tell. All yeah. these kids on their screen, they all look the same. And none of them look good. You know, I, I don't know how they're doing. How am I supposed to tell, you know? So it's, it's all of that. And don't even get me started on being a parent right now. And, you know, some parents are lucky enough to work from home. How are you going to work from home full time? and make sure your kid is in school online. How are you gonna do that? And then, and then the parents who've lost work. Um, you know, people ask me like, Ali, how, do, how, do, how should we cope with, um, with the stress of COVID? And I say, make sure everyone um, who, who needs it is getting unemployment benefits. Make sure we can open up as responsibly and as quickly as possible. Make sure we get these vaccines out to everyone. Let's get these schools open in a safe way. That's how you deal with the stress. You know, I'm not going to teach you a deep breathing technique to cope with this. Our system is kind of broken and we need to be fixing the system so, pe so the stability of our life can come back as soon as possible. You know, that's, that's how we cope with the stress of COVID. Yeah. And, and, and let, let me, let, let me ask you when you go to school and you went to school for this for a long time, how often do you guys study the event of a 1929 market crash to kids 10, 20 years later, the event of a world war two to kids 10, 20 years later, the event of, you know, kids growing up in a very poor family, sharing a bread with three other siblings, the yeah. side effects of it, five, 10 years later, no wonder you know, the generation that came from the Great Depression are so scared constantly of spending money. So they're savers and they're so worried because everything's going to be taken away from them. How much do you guys study that? And if that is the case, what what is the effects of this 10 years from now? I'm, I'm not really interested in right now, but is there a way of measuring on what's going to happen 10 years from now, 20 years from now to kids as well as parents? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, that's, that's a real uh, wonderful question. So that speaks to research on trauma. And when we look at trauma, there's a lot that's been studied from uh, World War II. Uh, there's a lot that's been studied, um, a lot of research that's been studied on veterans and the Vietnam War and, um, and refugees and global crises. Um, so there, there's a lot of research we can bring in from, um, from trauma. And what we know about trauma is it affects adults differently then it affects kids. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways in which it affects adults, the, the stereotype of trauma is, uh, is something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, someone goes to war, they experience something horrific, they come back, they're having flashbacks of it, they're always on guard, always on edge, things like that. Um, 
the traditional idea is something happens to you and now you're experiencing this trauma and it's it's very much what we think of as episodic that this one thing happened and now you're experiencing this for kids it's different um and for for kids um how trauma impacts them is like i was saying before about grief and grief kind of supercharges your emotions what happens for trauma and kids is it does um, it does make their emotions more intense. It makes it easier for the emotions to, to to skyrocket, and it takes them longer to calm down. So think of it like this: it's like having a car where you got a real powerful accelerator and pretty bad brakes. That's kind of what trauma does to kids. Got it. And if if that trauma happens for a real long period of time it can really change how they view themselves. So um, kids who go through trauma, um, they might grow up and think that they're dumb. They might think they're stupid. They might think they're unworthy. And people might label it anxiety, depression, um, these kind of things. But um, at the heart of it might be a, a long-term trauma they experience. So when we look at kids right now, first off, it's not equal, not everyone. Is, is experiencing this in a traumatic way. And mm -hmm. I should probably kind of define what, what a trauma is. Um, you know, a trauma completely changes your view of yourself, of the world or of other people. Um, the younger the kid is, they might not be able to experience the, all the thoughts that come with it. But what they do experience is the, the very powerful emotions that do come with it. And, um, for kids, we call we, we think about um, adverse childhood experiences, uh, which COVID is one of them. Getting disrupted from so COVID, first off, just the pandemic is an adverse childhood experience um, because now it in, introduces this this fear of getting this virus, and especially kids that are six, seven, eight, they're already afraid of germs and they're already afraid of getting sick. So I'm hearing from a lot of teachers about these six, seven, eight-year-olds going back to the classroom. They're washing their hands all the time. They're really afraid. They're going way above and beyond what they need to be doing. So that's kind of one effect we're seeing of this is just COVID in itself is, um, can be a traumatic adverse childhood experience. Getting disruption from school, not being in school for a year is a part of this. I got a nephew who is... Um, really scared. He's he's in high school. He's really scared about going back to school. Uh, he's he has not been in a large social environment for over a year now. Um, he, he's terrified of going back. So that is an adverse childhood experience. Like, how are you? How are you even going to get? How old he's your nephew? Seventeen. Okay, yeah, got he's it. Seventeen. So. Um, how, how much of that, if we stay on that, let's stay on that because people yeah. being scared to going back to normal. Uh, uh, Doc, how much of that is parents? Okay, if you're around, oh my gosh, my parents are so scared. So maybe I also got to be scared. How much of that is watching the news? Oh my goodness, this next variant's going to, oh, this is going to kill even more than how many. How much of that is social media? Did you see what happened? This thing is so scary. How much of it is external? How much of it is real? How much of it is immediately your family? to the way they're reacting, because I think a lot of the things is also some of this can be prevented. So from your experience, yeah. how much of it is the news, social and family worried around you? 
I'm going to say it's all of the above and I'm going to add one more, which is age too. So Patrick, you were saying something earlier, like, you know, you, you, um, when you have a funeral in your twenties is different than in your thirties, it's different than yep. in your forties and, um, and then on and on. So one of the things that COVID has done is um, it's impacted different ages in, in different ways. So you and I, we've lived some life, you know, we haven't lived through this kind of pandemic and all the all everything that's happened as a result of it but we've dealt with some losses we've dealt with uncertainty we've lived through some strange times you know like i i remember uh, i can tell you exactly everything about 911 and and the way it, it it changed uh changed my world you know um i can tell you about these different events i can tell you about living through the 1989 earthquake and the terror I had, how much I thought I was going to die in that moment. Like I can tell you about some stuff that I've lived through and what I learned as a result of it, how I learned about coping, how I learned about getting through that stuff. Kids, teenagers are different. They've lived through less life. They've had less exposure to uncertainty, to dealing with these big periods of unknown. They've had less grief to deal with. Um, that number one can make it harder for kids and teenagers to adjust to life back than, um, than it might be for you and I. And then the other thing, Patrick, is I've, throughout this whole pandemic, I've been the one going to get groceries. Sometimes my wife gets groceries too. Sometimes we get them delivered. But um, the first few times I did that, man, I was scared. I was, and I was doing a lot of stuff that now we might find like really silly, like trying to make sure I don't touch anything, you know, trying to like uh, be like all on guard. And that was, none of us were wearing masks back then. It was, we didn't know what was causing this, how it was being transmitted. We didn't know any of that kind of stuff. Yep. But those first few times I went to the grocery store, you know, I was terrified. But then as time got on, I was getting less, my emotions were less intense. I was learning how to navigate it, things like that. Um, some kids have just done less during this time. They've been just more at home, right? And so that gets to the family part you're talking about is what are the expectations been on for kids? And there's no right answer here. You know, some kids might be more vulnerable to health-related problems and the families have kept them at home more. Some kids might be less vulnerable and um, kids have done more stuff. Some kids might have been living in an area where they've had less exposure to COVID. So, you know, their lives haven't been as disrupted. So there's a family component too. There's an environment component. There's an age component. But the other thing you mentioned is the role of media as well. You know, when, when we go through periods of big uncertainty, it's kind of like... Um, um, an allergic reaction to anxiety. So when we get allergies, our immune system is responding too much. You know, you, you get exposure to pollen. Pollen's a totally normal thing. It shouldn't be doing anything to us. But when you get exposed to pollen, if you have an allergy, your eyes might get watery. You might get a runny nose. You might be sneezing. Your immune system is reacting to something that's normal. And it's thinking, this is something I need to fight. When we get a lot of uncertainty, your mind kind of reacts the same way. Your mind's like, I need to think about this a lot. I need to find a lot of information about this. I need to take all my attention 
and focus it and trying to solve this thing, trying to figure it out, right? That's what happens when we're really anxious and we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. Now let's play this out. If this is happening to you and your mind's like, get more information, learn more about it, worry more about it, try to solve this problem. And you're going to a lot of new sites or you're looking up really horrible things. Like, you know, you go to Google and you, and you look up, you know, worst side effects of COVID, unknown side effects of COVID, like how to know if you secretly have COVID but don't have symptoms. You know, you look up that stuff, you're going to find yeah. really scary, wild, wacky corners of the internet. That's just like the, the movie. If you works. remember the movie that was trending was Contagion. You remember the movie Contagion? Oh, yeah. That oh, movie, yeah. Go watch it. It's identical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody was like, oh, my gosh, look what's going on. I mean, the, the effects of it had to... to you know, make it a, even exaggerate the crisis that we had, not downplaying the crisis, but it exact. So, so let me ask you this question. So, so panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, hair pulling disorder, phobias, you know, skin picking, you know, Tourette's, uh, tick, bipolar, all of these things that you deal with, how much of this, all these things that, you know, folks go through, I've gone through panic anxiety myself, uh, yeah. haven't lived in a war in Iran 10 years that can do a number on you. Refugee camp, parents, yeah. divorce, army. You come into a new place, you don't speak English. All you take is ESL. A lot of those things can have an impact in your life. Absolutely. But uh, how much of us having or somebody being diagnosed with bipolar or schizo or a ton of panic, a ton of anxiety, a certain phobia that you have, how much of that doc is your DNA Okay, like I have three kids, they're all different. So not yeah. saying DNA as in genes, I just call it DNA. And I don't know if this, that's the right word or not, or let's say wiring, your individual sure. wiring that has nothing to do with your parents. You have your own wiring. How much of it is that? How much of it is genes? How much of it is your experiences that you're personally gonna experience? And how much of it is your environment that leads to you having bipolar, anxiety, panic, schizo, any of this stuff? What would you say to that? Yeah, I wish I had a, um, a universal answer that would fit all the things you just mentioned. Um, but it, it really depends on the type of problem we're talking about. So let me break out some of the things that you mentioned. We, we mentioned bipolar disorder. So um, bipolar disorder is something that is much more genetic. What that means is it tends to run in families. And I've seen that, I can trace it back. Once we knew that this is what my brother was dealing with, it was like, oh my gosh, this is what so-and-so struggles with. This is what another relative experiences. We see the connection Friends. in our family, yeah. how it's been sort of passed along. There's other things too that, that can run in families like um, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder can run in families ticks and Tourette's can run in families. I once had a patient, Patrick, um, uh, this is a young teen who um, we just diagnosed him as having um, Tourette's. And the dad said, I don't know where he gets this. Cause I said, you know, this runs in families. It can be genetic. I have no idea how, it, how he gets this. And the mom of the child turned to the dad and said, are you kidding me? You have a blinking tick. And he's like, I've got a blinking tick. He's like, yeah, you've had it the whole life, you know? So like some of these things run in families. You don't even know you have it. You might not know you yeah. have it. You might, yeah. you know, you look, I mean, Patrick, you and I, like when we were kids, 
How much were people talking about mental health? Nobody was. Nobody was. Yeah. Nobody was talking about these things. You know, that child is a problem child. They don't listen, you know, but now we might be like, oh man, that kid, that kid's really depressed or that kid, it's got ADHD. You know, we see things in a different way now. My brother, when he was growing up in the 70s, 80s, bipolar disorder wasn't on anyone's radar, no one's radar, you know? So you go back a few generations and people just didn't see things this way, especially not in schools. Like I'll give you an example, autism. Autism is a, it's a, a, a really complicated, problem that has, um, it has, there's a lot of biology involved and we're not 100% sure what the cause is, but we do know that a lot of biology is involved here. Nowadays, every pediatrician at certain ages does screenings in the United States. I, I can't speak to globally, but in the United States, every pediatrician does screening for autism to make sure that we're catching these kids early. That's because of a lot of advocacy from parents. It's because of a lot of research from scientists. Um, that's in place now. You know, we try to catch these things earlier, but you just go back a few decades, no one was looking at this stuff. So part of it is that we're, we're seeing things a little bit differently now. And you go back a few generations and um, maybe someone was, oh yeah, you know, grandpa, Grandpa drank a lot. Um, maybe grandpa was drinking a lot because he was he was really anxious. You know, we, we don't know. Or maybe grandpa's drinking a lot because he's a refugee. He went through major trauma. You know, he escaped a war, um, but no one thought of it as trauma. We used to think a long time ago of shell shock, that soldiers would go through the shell shock. And, um, you know, like, our, our understandings evolved. So some of these things run through families, but we, didn't, we don't see them as, as, as mental health problems. We don't see them as mental illness. So things like bipolar, things like schizophrenia, you mentioned schizophrenia. We know there's a biological component, but we also think there might be an environmental component. Autism, we know that's a big biological component. But some of the other things you mentioned about anxiety and, and depression, the way I think about that is some people are born with a temperament. And what do I mean by temper? I don't mean like yelling and screaming temperament. Temperament, I mean how intensely you feel different emotions. The, uh, most of that is biological. Doesn't mean you can blame mom or dad, but it does mean the unique DNA you got that's led to your temperament. And so what do I mean by that? You know, um, some people are born with the volume turned up on anxiety. Some people are turned with the volume um, down. Some people are born with the volume turned down on anxiety. And I think we've all seen those kind of people. You know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a like medium high is my level. And so I'm less likely to do my, when my friends are like, hey, let's go snowboarding. I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. Because where my head goes is, I'm going to fall and break my leg. Like, that's just where my head mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. But we all know people with anxiety turned way down. They're the first one to get on that board. They're the first one to hit that, like, extreme level mount. You know, like, some people, the daredevils in our life, they probably have very low levels of, of anxiety. And the people who are really risk 
averse. Maybe you worked with some of these financial investors and they're, they're highly averse to risk. You know, they think through things a lot. Um, maybe they're bored. Maybe their temperament is a little bit higher um, for anxiety. So, and that's true of anger. It's true of sadness. It's true of happiness too. We're all born with a range. And for some of us is high, for some of us is low, you know? So part of that is just the DNA wiring that we've got. But then we've got the environment. You know, some of us go through really horrible experiences. Some of us have an easier time. And that's not to say that that leads to the problems, but it's also leads to how we learn to cope with them. You know, some of us might go through tough stuff and we, we learn really quickly how to deal with those really horrible emotions. We learn really quickly how to cope with this kind of stress. Um, and some of us aren't able to. So it, it's a complex connection between our DNA, our wiring, our environment, what we learn from our family, our culture. Culture is a big part of it. Um, what emotions are allowed in the culture, what aren't, how people cope with these yeah. things. And then what happens when you learn how to deal well with the culture, but then now you're put into a different place where like the things you, you learn, you, you can't easily do, you know? Um, so it's, it's all of these things. It's biology, it's culture, it's what you learn. It's the difficult things you go through. It's, it's, it's all of that. And when we talk about anxiety, all the folks I've treated, you know, um, some people got more of the biology and they had less of the environment stuff. Some people had like no biology environment stuff, but they went through some really tough things. You know, um, it's a little bit different for each person. I got uh, very helpful, right? Then we're going to come back to it based on the, the, the conversation qu questions I want to ask you here. Two books that I read that changed yeah. the way I looked at hypomanic. So think yeah. about manic hypomanic. So one of them was a book written by uh, 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 Nasir Rahemi. One of them was written by Nasir Rahemi, which is First Rate Madness. The other one was Hypomanic Edge. And on this one, it says uh, the sub, uh, subtitle is Uncovering the Link Between Leadership and Mental Illness. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's this one, New York Times bestseller. The other one is Hypomanic Edge, the link between a little craziness and a lot of success in America. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about the hypomanic one. In the yeah, hypomanic yeah. book, like page 15 or something, it says, given how radically different mania and hypomanic is, it is perhaps surprising that then, so it goes all the way down to saying there's certain criteria that people have one of these things that they're manic or hyper, uh, hypomanic, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, you know, like you're thinking mm -hmm. so highly of yourself, decreased need for sleep. They feel yeah. like they don't need to get a lot of sleep, three, four, five hours of sleep. Everybody's like, how the hell do you do that? More talkative <laughs> than usual or pressure yeah. to keep talking flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing, distractibility, attention too easily drawn to unimportant or irrelevant external stimuli. Like, why are you paying attention to that butterfly? It's got nothing to do with your life. Increase in goal-directed activity, either socially, at work, sexually. Uh, uh, it's just higher than usual. Excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have high potential for painful consequences engaging in unrestrained buying sprees, sexual discretions, or foolish business, business investments. So, right. and then Nasir talks about it in a completely different, in a similar way, 
where he says we have to understand that uh, there's benefits of illness like bipolar disorder and depression that can be good to have in a leader. And he says nations have made it through difficult times throughout history because they're mentally ill leaders. And last one, he says, recognizing that mental illness has its good ideas as a step uh, uh, toward breaking the stigma toward it. Okay, so you have this hard, put, put a Churchill. They talk about Churchill. They, lock, they talk about Alexander Hamilton, Bill Clinton, a Trump, a JFK. These, you, you know, there's a lot of different issues that these folks have experienced. I mean, John F. Kennedy has one of the most difficult fathers yeah. to have as a father who was hard charging, right? What right. benefits are there in business to some folks hey, that do have mental disorders that maybe if we read the book, we're like, they have issues, but when it comes down to business, leadership, military, they tend to excel. Yeah. Um, you, you speak about um, hypomania there, which is a part of, um, of bipolar disorder. And um, there's a, another book by... Um, a psychologist who actually has bipolar disorder herself. Her name's Kay Redford Jameson. I think the book is called Exuberance. But um, one of the things that she talks about is how mental illness gives you a different perspective. You know, and this is one of the things I've learned in my career is um, I'm, I'm taking this from, from another psychologist. So this is not some amazing words I came up with, but they've always stuck with me. Um, the world needs all types of brains. You know, teams need different types of brains. Organizations need different types of brain. Countries need different types of brains. What I mean by that is the most dangerous thing in a team is when everyone's thinking the same way. You mentioned Kennedy. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a complete disaster. And it was a complete disaster because of something called groupthink where um, it wasn't allowed for people to express different points of views that might challenge the leader. We saw this with the space shuttle um, um, Challenger disaster as well. It was the same thing. There was people saying this ship, we, we sh there's a flaw here. We need to look at it. We should not be flying this thing. And there was other people saying, shut up. We're gonna move forward with this. So the most, the most important thing for any business is to have a team where it, we've made it safe for people to share different points of view. And when you have a mental illness, you are seeing the world in a different way for good and for bad. And what I mean by for bad is you're, gonna, you're experiencing things that might cause you distress in your life, they might make it hard for you to live your life. So when you have, uh, let's, let's talk about hypomania, for example. Um, yeah, you might be talking um, excessively. You might have that distractibility. You're bouncing around from, from different ideas. Um, you might be um, uh, ordering too much, uh, too much shopping. You might be doing a lot of that excessive pleasure seeking. You're also seeing things very differently. And we need to, to celebrate those different perspectives and make it okay for people to, to be openly um, have anxiety, have depression, have hypomania, have um, schizophrenia. Um, we, need to, we need to make it okay 
to, and not just okay, but celebrate these different ways of seeing things. We always want to make sure that people are getting the help that they need. I mean, schizophrenia is um, one of the, the biggest common symptoms of it is just real confusion about what's happening around you. And at the same time, it gives you a drastically different view of the world. And there is massive value in that. You know, um, um, I had a professor once who said that they believe that ADHD has survived in our gene pool for so long because these are exactly the kind of people that you want to have on guard for your tribe when you were um, when you were threatened by enemies because they're the first ones to turn and look at different sounds and distractions in the environment. They would be the first ones to spot potential threats. You know, they're always so quick to react to different things happening to you. And that always stuck with me because I thought, huh, what if we focus less on the problems that these things cause and a little bit more on the benefits? You mentioned up top um, the show I did, A&E, uh, The Employables. And that show, we worked with a lot of people who have autism and who have um, Tourette's to help them understand, yeah, you got these things. You, and, and it's your responsibility to learn how to cope with them. At the same time, you got a lot of gifts as well. And you have a different way of seeing things. And how can we help you to really own those differences so that you can really make a big difference in, in the organizations you serve, you know? I'm, I'm a big, I'm a, a huge believer in that. Um, you know, you, when, you, when you got, um, you're hiring someone to be an air traffic controller, you want someone who's gonna be a little bit more conservative and someone who's gonna be a little bit more anxious. You know, there's, there's certain jobs that you definitely want people who have a way of seeing things. If you're doing some quality assurance stuff, you want someone who, who might think a little bit more the way like someone who has autism does. You know, people who don't have autism, they're very biased towards verbal and social behavior. People who have autism are much more biased towards logic and visual information people who have autism can do so much better at problems related to logic. So quality assurance, coding, these kind of things, um, they might be able to see things that someone who's more, the term is neurotypical, someone who's neurotypical, they wouldn't see those things or they'd have a lot of problems with them. So absolutely, I, I agree with, uh, with that, that idea that um, organizations need a diversity of brains to, to be able to, to perform their best. That's, that's where you get the real creativity, Patrick. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, I read this book. I'm like, wait, what? You know, uh, uh, <laughs> inflated self-esteem, decreased need for sleep, more talkative than usual, flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing, distractibility, increasing goal-directed uh, activities, excessive involvement, pleasurable activities that have a high potential painful consequences. Like, the, the idea of willing to kind of play on the, you know, edge and, hey, I'm going to take a little bit more risk and who cares? I know there's some risk involved in it, but what if we go out there and pull this thing off? Um, 
I was talking to one of my guys one time. I said, you know what? I don't worry about you when everything is good. Uh, everything <laughs> is bad. When everything is bad, I don't worry about you because you're very good when it's chaos and havoc. Yeah. I worry about you when everything is good because when everything is good, you somehow, some way have a tendency of creating havoc and chaos because that's your comfort zone. You like to have right. chaos. So you don't know when everything is like, oh my gosh, things are going too good. I mean, something's probably about to fall apart and something's going to break apart. I need some more crisis in my life. And you, you tend to create it. But uh, I've seen a lot of trends with this on folks who win in business that they're wired uh, slightly different. And the world may look at them and say, this person's a psychopath, sociopath. This person's got problems. But in reality, they use those same abilities to win in business. So having said that, going into yeah. psychopath and sociopath. One, yeah. what is the difference? Yeah. And two, why do so many of them make it to the top of politics, business, everything? Yeah. Um, psychopaths or psychopathy, it's, it's people who have um, less empathy towards others. And that, that might sound scary at first, but um, it's what research has shown is it, it's um, far more common than we realize. And so um, it's, it's when other people might experience um, a lot of intense emotions, they, they might experience a lot less emotions. Um, they're, less, um, uh, they're less reactive to things. And um, someone who has more um, psychopathy, um, psychopath is a term, they're the kind of people who make great scientists. They're the kind of people who make great business leaders. Um, and the reason for that, these are all, you know, these are a lot of people who are in, um, in financial industry. The reason for that is um, they're making decisions that are a lot less personal. They're making decisions that are a lot less emotional. They're looking at the data. They're looking at the trends, and they're letting they're letting that sort of guide their decision making. There's um, this well-known story about um, in in this whole world about um, a neuroscientist who was studying um, psychopaths, and in the process of studying them, realized that he himself um, fit the category of this. And that kind of sparked a lot of the conversation around, well, you know, this is something you want in a scientist. You want someone who is very objective, not taking things personally, but looking at the data and letting the data guide things. Sociopaths are, are people who um, have, have done things like um, really horrific breaking the law. It's more of a legal term. And it's um, uh, people who have committed murders, um, people who are serial murderers, those kind of things. That's that's more of a sociopath. So um, if you look at the movie, um, if you look at the movie Joker, uh, he's he's much more of a sociopath. Um, if you look at the movie um, Iron Man, we can argue he might be more of a psychopath. He's he's especially the first few ones. He's uh, He's a bit more cold towards other people. Um, he's he can be a bit more um, a, a bit more data driven, and I know I'll get in trouble with this with all the Marvel fans because they're like, "What are you talking about?" He's a guy who kind of pulls us out of all this Infinity War and all that stuff. I know, I know, I'm I'm making big generalizations here. Uh, how about um, the Ben Affleck in uh, in uh, uh, in the Accountant? 
I don't think I've seen that. I haven't. Oh, you um, gotta be I haven't kidding seen me. the account. No. Oh my God. I mean, you listen, you gotta watch that this week. It's a ridiculous movie, Re especially for somebody who's in the space. Interesting. So mm -hmm. the Joker, sociopath, uh, uh, Iron Man, psychopath, because he didn't really care much about not this. Does the idea of psychopath help when a person is in business because they don't really feel and understand the idea of rejecting an idea. I don't understand rejection. You don't think I can do it. It doesn't bother me. Is that is that the benefit in the world of business? So it's it's a bit more that you can make you can make decisions less based on your emotions related to other people. So look, like if you if you're at a startup, um, you are your idea is not taking off, and um, you got, you got only so much funding, right? You got a million dollars left um, and your idea is not working. Maybe you decide that, hey, you know what? I'm gonna lay off half the team because for the larger business, we need to cut down our expenses if we got a shot at making this work, right? So people who, are, who have more psychopathy are able to make that decision easier than someone who's going to be really struggling with that. Like, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't let these people go. And then the whole business might, might completely die out because you couldn't make that tough call that might actually hurt some people, but be better for the larger team. You know, that's the idea right there. What we were talking about a little bit before, and I think presidents are a good example of this, is, um, is a bit more ego and a bit more of uh, what I'd call like a healthy narcissism and self-confidence in yourself. Um, that is what, what allows a lot of presidents to, to get to that place. You know, I just finished um, reading Obama's memoir. Man, that is a long book. Um, my <laughs> gosh, um, it was really long. I, didn't, I did an audio book, um, but it's like 38 hours. hours. I think it's 38 hours it, or 36 yeah, hours. Yeah. It, I, I had to watch a lot of dishes to finish that book. Um, but, you know, the thing that stuck out to me is how much his story is so similar to every other president memoir I've read. You know, they all have this sense of like when other people are telling them you can't do this, they're saying, no, I can. Yeah, I can. I can totally do this. Like this time is going to be different. You watch, right? That sense of self-confidence in yourself of thinking highly of yourself that you can do things that other people might not be able to do. Uh, whether you wanna call that ego, you wanna call that self-confidence, you wanna call that narcissism. Everyone who's reached the top of, um, of their different industries has a good dose of that, a healthy dose of that. And what I mean by a healthy dose of that is they also have to know their weaknesses too. Like people who might have too much self-confidence might not realize where they need to delegate to other people, where they need to get input from other people, um, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but anyone who's reached the top here has a has a very high sense of confidence in themselves. It, 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 you know, a, a completely different uh, uh, topic is on insecurity. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine 12 years ago. And we were at Pebble Beach and we were looking at everybody that was winning at this one event that we were at. Everybody was extremely confident and insecure yeah. at the same time. Very weird yeah. how those two go together. 
Here, right. here you got a guy or gal standing on stage, and let me tell you, da, 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 da. but they have these deep-rooted two or three insecurities that we, because we were friends, we knew these deep insecurities drove the hell out of them to go win at the highest level. We're like, wait a minute, how do your insecurities drive you? So what would you say about people's insecurities as a driver? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question, and um, you know the the term imposter syndrome gets tossed around a lot now nowadays. Um, this idea that um, people are going to figure out I don't really belong here. Um, I don't, they're going to figure um, out I don't really fit. They're going to yeah. figure out I'm a fraud. That kind of stuff. I think that drives a lot of people uh, as well um, as as some of these insecurities, these chips on their shoulder. You know, wow. like that that kid that 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 depressed, anxious kid who I was in, in middle school, um, part of that is still there, you know? Like when you said, uh, if this doesn't work out, maybe you should go Hollywood or be a model. Like that kid in me was like, what are you talking about? You know, like, have you looked in the mirror, right? Um, so like- By the way, FYI, I figured out who you look like. It's this guy named Riz Ahmed. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh yeah, I know. Oh, he's amazing. I, I, I love, um, I get that. Um, I get Riz and I go, I also get Taika Waititi, uh, um, this guy who directed, um, he's directed a bunch of movies. Um, so I'm, I'm cool with that. I, I, I like Riz. I'm, I'm a big, uh, big fan of his work, rooting for him at the Oscars this year. Um, so when we're talking about insecurities and, and we talk about, um, um, we talk about imposter syndrome stuff too, um, there's a fine line between when it's helping you and when it's hurting you. And sometimes it might be doing both at once. You know, your, your insecurities about um, your finances, about, um, about your weight, about your, your health, about your achievements, um, they can be the things that both are motivating you to do more, to put in that extra work, to, to try harder, to read more of those books, to talk to more of those people. And they can also be those things that keep you up at night, that make you second guess yourself, that make you think you're, you're not good enough, you're not, um, you haven't done enough. And so we have to sort of, um, anyone who's gonna be good in, in the business space, you, you gotta understand yourself. You gotta understand, um, you know, what am I really good at? Like, what am I honestly good at? Like, Patrick, I knew um, when your team reached out for this interview, I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy who's like gonna be sweating about this because I know this is something I do well, like talking to other people, having a conversation, explaining things, using analogies. I know this is something that I do well, but if you ask me to design an experiment with the best scientific methods, come up with the best statistics to make sure that all this stuff is like 100% like up to code. That's not my strength. That's not, that's not what I'm good at, you know? So we got to know our strengths and weaknesses. And then we got to get good. I would say my biggest advice to anyone who wants to succeed in business, you got to get good at getting feedback from other people, at getting critical feedback, at learning from your mentors, at talking to people who are much better than you at the thing you want to get good at and getting that critical feedback. One of the, the things that I think as, as a parent now, 
And as, as someone who, you know, I was trained as a child clinical psychologist. So my first part of my career, I mostly work with kids, teenagers, young adults. Um, the, the 16 to kind of 25 year old, like they're my, they're my favorite group to work with. And the thing I saw that really, that, that these people really struggled with is failure, learning from failure and getting feedback. Like we got to make it okay as a society to get critical feedback. The thing we shouldn't be worshiping is success. We shouldn't be worshiping all these like, like elite athletes and um, like what they've achieved. We shouldn't be worshiping all the business leaders and everything that they've, they've accomplished here. What we should look at is all these leaders, all these people that we look up to, where did they fail? How did they learn from that? How did they improve? The Obama book I was just mentioning man, this guy lost so many elections before, before like things took off. Like, but what he did is he learned from them. He got feedback. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And this is where it connects to insecurities. Um, your insecurities can be a great driver if you know what your real strengths are, you know your real weaknesses, and you got the guts to get feedback from other people. You know, and, and that's where I would say insecurities can be a big problem is if they keep you from asking those tough questions. If I said like, Patrick, you've seen a lot of my videos, man, tell me, what do you like? But what I want to know more is like, what did you not like? You know, is my production quality? Are they too long? Am I going on and on about this? Like, what can I do to get better? You've got this super successful YouTube channel, you know, like, like tell me how I can improve, right? I need to be able to have the guts to go into that vulnerable place where I'm getting your feedback. By, by the way, I've enjoyed this a lot. And, and whether you're a, a, a executive salesperson, an entrepreneur, just anybody that's just watching this, a parent, a 17 year old kid that's gone through COVID and you're trying to figure yourself out. Uh, uh, we touched so many different angles in this uh, interview together, extremely helpful. I learned a lot from you, brother. I appreciate your time. Uh, what I, what people, if you don't know, guys, he's got a show called The Psych Show, and it's a YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to it yet, we're going to put the link below. It's going to be all over the place so you can see what it looks like. And if you're wondering when I said he looks like, you know, uh, 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 he looks Riz. like uh, Riz, I, I want you guys, editor, please put the picture right next to us. Make the comparison to Riz, because I think if you didn't do what you did here, you would absolutely be a Hollywood star. You got to look for it. But uh, once again, brother, thank you for your time. Appreciate you coming and being a guest on Value Team. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I want to thank you for making this space for us to talk about all of these things. Um, that's why I wanted to come on here. I, I know you do a thorough job with, with your interviews. And I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to really talk about mental health, to celebrate these things. So I appreciate you making the space. God knows we need to talk about this more today. We need to talk about this issue more today. Once again, thank you. Interesting interview. Lots of topics. COVID, reaction, anxiety, bipolar, hypomanic, the link between insecurity and success. So many different topics. I want to know what you took away from it. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, I think you will enjoy the interview I did with Dr. Jordan Peterson in front of 7,000 people. If you've never seen this before, it's the same exact event that I interviewed Jordan Peterson, the late Kobe Bryant, as well as President Bush. Click over here to watch that interview. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.